Thank you for joining in for this City Lights Church podcast. We're a new church in the north of Brisbane, and you can find out more about us at www.citylights.community. We hope that this podcast encourages you in your journey of following Jesus. Okay, good morning. Great to be here. Who watched the tennis last night? Who stayed up and watched the tennis? No one. One. Okay. I just want to know because if you go to sleep while I'm preaching, I know it's not because I'm boring. So now that I know that, that's great. Just going to put that there. Can you hold that for me there? Thank you. Well, it's great to be here. The only thing that's missing is Andrew and Beck, but anyway, uh, we'll see what we can do. Loved your worship this morning. Who can remember when they were 24? Some of you are still there, yeah. When I was 24, I was in debt up to my eyeballs. Um, I, I had a great job. I was making a lot of money. Money was coming in, but a lot more was going out than what was coming in. I'd just recently before that had experienced a massive relationship breakdown, and I think it seemed to pr- propel me even further into trying to uh, get to a place where I was happy with my life. I had no joy, I wasn't happy, I was miserable, I was depressed and I think uh, those feelings that I had and uh, everything that I'd gone through had just pushed me and propelled me to this place where I was just desperately seeking to be in a place of happiness. I was spending far much more than I was making. I had a great job, it was an executive position up in North Queensland, it was a lot of money but uh, it wasn't enough to, to fund the lifestyle I was leaving as I, leading as I was trying to pursue this kind of life of happiness to get to that place where I was content with everything. I remember walking down each week, I'd go down to the newsagent and uh, you used to buy a thing called a casket ticket and there was one, the Sunshine Casket, had the massive prize of $30,000. I mean, it doesn't mean much now, but not too long before that, you could buy a house in West End for 27000 So it was a lot of money. And I remember pinning my hopes every week on winning the sunshine casket, you know, $30,000. And uh, I'd have them up on my wall. I'd stick them on my wall in the office. And then when the results come out, I'd go back to the casket shop and I'd get the results and I'd come back. And I was just broker than I was before I bought the tickets. But I had this image in my mind, if I could win it, I'd pay off my debts and I was getting deeper and deeper in debt. You know, I'd do all the things that I wanted to do and I'd convince myself that if I just had enough money, I'd be happy. I could experience joy again. I'd have a level of contentment. And uh, we all know that if money and possessions were the cure-all to unhappiness and that lack of joy that people with a lot of money wouldn't go into depression or wouldn't kill themselves, and unfortunately it happens all the time. Uh, Boris Becker, I remember reading about Boris Becker, Wimbledon. He was uh, a two-time Wimbledon winner, was the number one professional tennis player um, in the world at that time, and he talked about becoming overwhelmed with a sense of hopelessness and emptiness. He said, you know, he had everything, but he said even though he'd experienced this incredible success and had it all, he was empty. He wrote this. He said, I had won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed, money, cars, women, everything. 
He said, I know that this is a bit cliche. It's like the old song of the movie and the pop stars who commit suicide. He said, they have everything and yet they're so unhappy. He said, I had no inner peace. I was a puppet on a string. And I look back when I was 24 and I was a puppet on a string. The society and the culture around me then and now desperately and a great cost to itself tries to convince us that happiness, the joy can come through the amount of money that we have or the things that we own or the relationships that we're in. If only I could have that house, I'd be happy. If only I could have that relationship, I'd be happy. If only I had that job. If only I had this amount of money, I'd be happy. I remember several years ago talking to a man who, who was really well off in terms of property, in terms of superannuation, stocks, and you know, sold a business worth a lot of money, had a lot of money. And I said to him one day when he was, he was talking about it, I said, how much more would you need? He said, just a couple more million. And I thought, when you get that, it still won't be enough. You want a few more million. If only we could have that number of followers on social media, then we can live in a state of constant joy and happiness. Deep down, you and I know that those things don't provide the happiness and the joy, the authentic happiness and deep joy that the Bible talks about. As Christians, of course, our joy, our happiness, that, that sense of contentment comes from our relationship with Jesus. It doesn't come through the amount of money that we can amass or the possessions or the people that we know. A believer's joy, a deep joy, an authentic happiness comes when we're in that right place with Jesus and in that relationship with him. And if that's not the case, then real joy, real happiness will be elusive because it's dependent on circumstances. And biblical joy, biblical happiness is not dependent on circumstances at all. It's dependent on Jesus. It's dependent on our relationship with him. It's dependent on what the word God says is reality. But many people, I think, live with a false sense of security, a false sense of reality. They want to own and possess things, and they think that when we have those things, we have them forever. But we're all just passing through. Nothing that we can amass here. We're not taking it with us. I've done a lot of funerals, Pastor John. You would have too. I've never seen a hearse with a roof rack or a luggage trailer. We are not taking anything with us at all. And yet we have this sense or uh, this, this thing that drives us that says, if you can get this, if you can get this, you'll be happy. This is not a new problem. This is uh, something that I think that all humanity has struggled with since the dawn of time. Just going back 300 years, actually, to this year, 300 years ago, 1721, there was a young man, a great preacher. He was 18. He preached his first message. And, man, I've read this message. It's a bit hard because of the English, uh, but I've read his message, and I'm thinking, how did an 18-year-old man preach like this? But then I researched him a bit more at 13 and 12. He's writing scientific journals, so I understand a little bit more. But at 18... In 1721, Jonathan Edwards preached his first sermon and uh, the title of that sermon was Christian Happiness. And uh, as he preached it, he preached from Isaiah chapter 3, verse 10. And that verse says this, Tell the righteous that it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. 
And from that verse, Edwards it came up, he said, there's three things that are foundational to Christian joy, to Christian happiness. There are three things that are foundational to this deep sense of contentment that we can have as Christians. And if we understand those things, and if we understand that our, our joy, our happiness, our contentment is not based on circumstances, then when uh, trials and tribulations come, when we go into a fiery furnace, we'll be able to stand strong with joy and with happiness. So there's three points that Jonathan Edwards made, and I want you to remember them. I want you to write them down or memorise them or something. They're not hard points, but they're three important points. And these were Jonathan Edwards' three points of the foundation of Christian happiness. One, your bad things are going to turn to good. Your bad things are going to turn to good. His second point was the good things that you have can never be taken away from you. And the third point is the best is yet to come. How's that? Your bad things are going to turn into good. Your good things that you have can never be taken from you and the best is yet to come. And Edward says if we can get a hold of these three realities, these three truths, then that will steer us. That will help us to stand strong in the face of anything and any adversity. And the source of that joy and happiness, of course, when we know those three things, is found in the nature of God. It's found in who God is. It's found in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And Jesus often spoke about joy. Jesus talked about joy a lot. He often talked about it as he talked about suffering and hardship as well. And we see those two go together. In John um, chapter 16, just before Jesus goes to the cross, he's talking to his disciples and he's talking to them about dying for what they believe. And uh, he, he talks about the joy that they'll have. He says that they will grieve and mourn, but their grief will be turned into joy. You'll grieve and mourn, but your grief will be turned into joy. In John 17, he prays for his followers that they would experience a full measure of joy despite everything that Jesus knew was ahead of his disciples. He prayed that they would experience that joy. And we see over and over again, the writers of the New Testament, Paul particularly, uh, there's a connection between joy and the things that we go through in life that are tough and that are really hard. There's a quality to Christian joy that is unbending. There's a quality to Christian joy that is unbending as the grave. It's like it's obstinate. It's rock solid. It doesn't matter what comes against you, you can have this joy. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, I'm not being silly here. I recognise that when things hit us, that there's a, a, we grieve, we mourn. We, we grieve and mourn the loss of things, whether it's people or relationships or things, we do that. But underneath even that grief, there is this foundational joy and happiness that we can have. James also talks about this joy that we can have when things go wrong. In James 1 verse 2, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face many trials of many kinds. So he's saying, James is saying that things are going to come against you, but you can have joy. You can consider it joy. If we know this joy, then there's nothing that can pull us down. There's nothing that can stop us this side of eternity. Suffering can come at us from all different ways, all different directions, and yet we can tenaciously hang on to joy and happiness that we have 
that comes through Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because we know that our bad things are going to turn to good. We know that the good things that we have can never be taken away from us. And we know that the best is yet to come. And this morning, I would just like to unpack these three points, these three truths, so that we can go down a little bit deeper, so that we can be equipped, we can be joyous, we can be content, we can have a level of happiness, even when everything goes south around us. We can stand up because we know that these three things are to be true. And I'd like to look at a different verse than Jonathan Edwards looked at. I'd like to look at Romans chapter 8. Romans is an incredible book. It's one of my favourite books of the Bible. And uh, as one preacher said, Romans 8 is about living in a world of brokenness and suffering. (laughs) That's what it's all about. And Paul tells us in verse 17 of Romans 8 that he says, in this world we'll, we'll share in Christ's sufferings. In verse 35, he talks about famine and nakedness and, and trouble and hardship. So it's like, this is all part of the deal. <laughs> but even so, we can have joy and happiness. But right in the middle of chapter 8, we read these very famous and very well-known verses, uh, verse 28 to verse 30. And we know that in all things... God works for the good for those who loved him and have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So we see that first point that your bad things will turn to good in verse 28. And we know that in all things, all things, good, bad and ugly, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now, I'm convinced that in the past I have read this at different times and I've misused this scripture. You know, someone comes to you, they've had a a relationship breakdown. Well, listen, you know, Paul says that all things are going to work for good. You know, this probably had to happen. There's someone better that God has for you and you're going to meet them. No, Paul doesn't use it like that because the reality is I've known people many, many years ago whose relationship broke down and they've never, ever met anyone and they probably won't. So it's talking about something else. And where we get it wrong, where we get the interpretation wrong is where we think that the good is all about this life. Yes, this has happened, but, you know, just hang in there. Keep your faith. Something good is going to happen. And then month after month and year after year and decade after decade, that thing doesn't change and we don't see that good. And then we doubt our faith. We doubt the goodness of God. We doubt those things. I think sometimes we think that deep down, we think that if we follow Jesus, now no one here would admit this, but we probably all think it a little bit. If we follow Jesus, if we're faithful to him, then nothing really bad is going to go wrong. Do you think that? I mean, I know sometimes I do. I think, well, well, you know, I love Jesus. I'm trying to serve him. I'm I'm, like, he's my boss. I'm working for him. Like, he's going to protect me. He's going to look after me. But, you know, the scriptures don't say that at all. Bad things happen to Christians and non-Christians alike. To think that bad things won't happen to us in this life is to go against everything that the scripture says. It's actually to buy into the prosperity gospel, which is a gospel that says if you love Jesus, nothing will ever go wrong. If you love Jesus, then your life will just be honky-dory. It'll be fantastic. It'll be all peaches and cream. And not many Christians would, would admit that that's what we think, but I think a lot of us do. 
And because of that, when something goes wrong, our faith is easily derailed. I mean, last week I was talking to a woman who uh, has been a Christian for a long time. I'd say she's a mature Christian, but she was spitting the dummy. Some things didn't go her way in her life and she's doubting the goodness of God. She's doubting God's love for her. And I'm there thinking, where have you been? (laughs) Haven't you heard any preaching? (laughs) Don't you know that bad things happen to Christians? It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that he's not good. Maybe, you know, Paul talked about that thorn in the flesh. He said, Satan sent it and gave it to me, but God let it stay there. (laughs) And it was for a reason. All things work for the good, for those that love God and are called according to his purpose, but it may not all be in this life. And because when we believe it's all in this life, that's why people get disillusioned with the faith. I don't know, but I know many people who once followed the Lord and served him. Something went wrong in their life and they thought that's not fair. That shouldn't have happened. Why did God allow that? He mustn't exist. And then they turn their back on their faith. And it comes from this false belief that everything should go well for us in life. If you look down in verse 35 of Romans 8, you know, we can see that Paul had no such expectation at all. And he asks the question, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, he says, none of that will separate us from the love of God. But he's saying it like, hey, this is going to (laughs) happen. All this stuff's going to happen. If you're loving Jesus and you're serving serving him and you're going to stand up for him, it's going to be tough at times. I think we've been protected in our faith in the West particularly. We've been incredibly protected And then it's a shock for us to think that something could go wrong for us. Now, it may very well be that God does bring good things to your life. And that's my prayer for you today. I pray that this side of eternity, you will enjoy the goodness of God. You will know that. And uh, there'll be plenty of good things that you'll enjoy. And I think we all hope for that. We pray for that. But, you know, incredibly good things and God things can come out of incredible adversity in this life. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata. I don't know if many of you know her. She was, um, for 50 years, I think, she has been uh, confined to a wheelchair when she was a young 17-year-old girl, footloose and fancy-free. She dived into this lake, crystal clear lake, and it, was, uh, it wasn't as deep as she thought. Her neck hit the bottom and snapped back, and she's been a quadriplegic ever, ever since. And she reflects after 50 years of being confined to a wheelchair, she said this. Uh, someone asked her, you know, why does God allow this? Why does God allow suffering? And she said, God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And what does God love? Well, for people to come into a relationship with him. And I wonder how many people have come into a relationship because of what Johnny has gone through. I mean, we can look at that great tragedy that happened to her, paralysed for 50 years, confined to a wheelchair. And she has accomplished so much in those 50 years. And she said, when I, as I look back, I see all the good that's come out of this thing that Satan meant for evil. You know, how many people with disabilities has she helped? How many people have come to know Jesus? I mean, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like for her when she does finally die and shuffle off this mortal coil and stands before Jesus. She gets out of that wheelchair, walks into the presence of Jesus and and hugs him. 
And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm sure that she will look back even more and say, it was worth it. All things work for good for those that love God and according, uh, called according to his purpose. God's going to turn our bad things into good. Our bad things will inevitably, most assuredly turn to good. But we may have to wait for eternity to see some of that good. I remember many years ago uh, being in Turkey, going into a village in Turkey and uh, in this village they were making all these Persian rugs and going in there under this kind of, was really like uh, just an iron roof, uh, an open, uh, a real open area, working area with this iron roof and there's these ladies all there making these beautiful Persian rugs. But you know, if you looked on one side, it was a mess. There was no design. There were bits of thread hanging off here and hanging off there and it just looked you know, if you're looking at that one side, there was nothing there to attract you to this, to this artefact. But when you walked around the other side and saw this incredible and beautiful and compelling design with the vibrant colours, and I think it's going to be like that for us on the day when we walk into eternity, it's like the rug's going to be flipped over and suddenly all this thing that lacks design and looks ugly and looks awful is going to be flipped over and we're going to see this beautiful creation that the grand weaver God has been working on for years and years and years. And when we step into eternity, we're going to look back at our lives, the good, the bad and the ugly, and we'll see how God just has put our lives together in such a beautiful and an intricate portrait of something that's invaluable, eternally invaluable and so very beautiful. Because our bad things are going to turn into good. Not only will our bad things turn to good, but Jonathan Edwards said, the good things that you already have will never be taken from you. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What are the good things that you have? that can never be taken away from you. Well, Paul talks about that in verse 29. He points to some of these good things. He, he, Paul uses that word and says, God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of God. Now, if you've been around Bible college, if you've been around theology, you know that people get all uh, upset about that word predestined and what it means. And uh, we could talk about that. We'd be here for years and never probably come to a, a real decision on it. But I think that uh, that word with that word predestined, it means a couple of things. It means that there's something planned. It means that there's something fixed. God has a plan. God has a fixed plan for your life. God has a fixed plan for my life. And no good thing uh, can be taken away from you because of God's fixed plan. Isn't that encouraging? That God has a plan for our lives. It's unshakable. It can't be challenged. It can't be moved. It's fixed. And what is it? Well, this plan is for us to become like Jesus. And that's why we're here, folks. Yeah, we come because the coffee's nice. Thanks, boys. You know, we come for a whole lot of things, for the fellowship and, you know, it's, it's close to home or whatever. There's a whole lot of reasons that we come. But we come because ultimately we want to become more Christ-like. We want to be disciples of Jesus. We want to learn what it is to follow Jesus with all our hearts and soul and mind and strength and love him in the same way. And that's God's fixed plan. He's predestined you to become like Jesus. That's a good thing that can never be taken away from you. And uh, we read there, Paul says that um, 
He says, not only are we becoming like Jesus through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, he says, but Jesus is our brother. Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What does that mean? Well, it means that we've been adopted into the family of God. It means that we can call God Father. Do you think about this? Do you think about the fact that the God who created the heavens and earth, who flung the stars into space, who set the, uh, the, the depths for the oceans and the heights for the mountains, who created everything in this universe, that God has adopted you as his son and as his daughter. It's something you've got to think about. One of the theologians that, that I love, J.I. Packer, wrote a book called Knowing God, which is a classic book. It's a great book. Um, and in that, uh, Packer talks about adoption. Listen to this. It's a long quote, but it's powerful. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and of having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and their whole outlook of life, it means that they do not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, and better than the Old Testament, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name of God. What a powerful quote. What a powerful reality. How much do you make of the fact that you're a son and daughter of the Most High God? Because the reality is, Paul says that Jesus is our brother. <laughs> We're adopted into the family of God. This is a good thing that can't be taken away from you. Not only does God have a plan for your life that's rock solid, that, that's set out, and that's to make you more like Jesus, he also has adopted you as a son and daughter into his family so that you have the same rights as a son and daughter of the Most High God. That's us. We can call God Father. You and I have been adopted into the family of God. And that's a good thing that can never be taken away from us. God has infused our lives with the precious Holy Spirit. He's at work in our life doing what he does. And that's a good thing that can never be taken away from us. We've been justified by Christ's atoning and substitutionary death on the cross of Calvary. That's a good thing that can never be taken away from us. We have complete and total forgiveness to the extent that Paul says at the beginning of, of Romans 8, he says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's me. It doesn't even exist. If you're a Christian, if you're trusting Jesus, your sins for the past, the present and the future have been forgiven. Condemnation doesn't even exist. It's not there. That's a good thing that can never be taken away from us. In his sermon, Edwards talks about a depth of joy and happiness that we experience in our lives because we have been pardoned and stand completely clean in the presence of God. He says this, how happy, how happy we must be to be reconciled and perfectly at peace with the great and eternal and almighty Jehovah. He rules and governs the whole universe and whatever he does, whatever he, um, and, and does whatever he pleases in the armies of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of all the earth. It's like, he's our dad, he's our God, he's our father. And that's a good thing that can never be taken from us. So our bad things are going to turn into good. Can I hear you say that? Our bad things are going to turn into good. Our good things can never be taken from us. And finally, 
the best is yet to come. Now, I know that there are probably books and teaching tapes around that the best is yet to come and it's talking about this life. But Edward certainly didn't have this, this life in mind. He didn't, he didn't say that it wasn't for this life that, and his prayer was the same, that hopefully good things happen to us in this life and you know, I know that good things will and good things do. But when he says the best is yet to come, he's talking about something in the future. Verse 30, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. And of course, glorification is what happens when we die, when we go to be with Jesus. A day will come for each and every one of us where we'll be glorified. It's predestined to happen. It's certain. It's locked in. It's a part of God's fixed plan that one day we'll be in the presence of our God and our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. We'll be there. We'll stand in front of him. It's going to be an amazing day. We'll live forever with God in a new heaven and a new earth. Now, again, it's a little bit about the fact that we've been adopted. How much do we think about that? (laughs) How much do you think about what it's going to be like? Because I think, sadly, we don't talk about it enough. Sadly, we don't think about it enough. And even more sadly, most Christians have the wrong idea. We think we die and we go into heaven and that's it. And our views of heaven are, are more shaped by, you know, newspaper or, you know, cartoonists who, you know, have us sitting on a cloud with a harp with wings, you know, this is heaven. No, heaven's not our, temp, our permanent place. Heaven's just a holding pattern. When we die, we go there until the new heavens and the new earth are created. You know, in Greek philosophy, so the Greeks found the form the foundation of all of Western culture, all of our society, all of our culture is from the Greeks. And in the Greek philosophy and Greek philosophers, they just disdained the physical. They hated it. They thought the spiritual, that was, that was way up here and, and if, if we can only get beyond the body. And unfortunately, some of that has come into the Christian church very early on and we did the same thing. But, uh, you know, the, the Bible and God doesn't differentiate. The spiritual is just as important as the physical and the physical is as important as, as, as the spiritual. When Jesus rose from the grave, he had a physical body. He ate food. You know, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth created and we will come from heaven to live uh, on this new earth and it'll be a physical earth. It'll be recreated. And we don't think about that. And we should. Because it's going to be a world free from sin. It's going to be a world free from all of those things that keep coming and destroying the world. What, what's your best experience that you've ever had on this earth? Can you think of it? What's the best thing you've ever done? I mean, I've got a couple I can think of, you know. Well, I've had the birth of my children. <laughs> that was pretty miraculous and magnificent. I remember walking through the great sandy desert by myself on the border of New South Wales and Queensland as the sun was coming up, feeling the warmth on my body as I was walking in this pristine desert. I don't know if anyone had walked there before. I remember sailing under the Sydney Harbour Bridge on this beautiful cloudless day on this old, completely restored square rigger sailing ship. It was massive, sailing out of Sydney Heads just as the wind filled the sails when they turned the, the diesel motor off and just sailing out. I remember that experience. Man, that was amazing. I remember standing on the Mount of Olives looking at the sun go down over the old city of Jerusalem and the Dome of the Rock. Man, what an experience. 
but take your best experience in this life, the best thing you've ever done, and it's going to pale into insignificance compared to what awaits us in heaven. The best is yet to come. How much do you consider your future glory? How much do you think about what your life is going to be like? And the Bible talks about it a lot for a reason. We're meant to kind of fix our eyes on what's ahead and it spurs us on to be faithful stewards of the gospel. We want to preach the gospel to those around us. It encourages us to seize the day. Let's not waste the day. Let's live for the Lord. It encourages, I think, to to stand firm in the midst of suffering and hardship when things do go wrong. We've got this hope in our hearts about the future. The best is yet to come. Paul says that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us on that day. Romans 8.18. In 2 Corinthians, he says this, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is seen, or not what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This is the secret to Christian joy and happiness and contentment. But we have to have a deep conviction that this is true. We have to have a deep conviction about all these things, that our bad things are going to turn to good, that our good things can't be taken from us and the best is yet to come. I love how Paul starts verse 28. In Romans 8, it's just like reeks of confidence and assurance. And we know, and we know, I can just about hear that confidence in his voice as he's writing, write this, and we know that in all things. He's saying that there's something that we have that's absolute. He's saying there's something that we have positive knowledge about that can't be taken away from us. And this is a knowledge of all that God has for us in Christ Jesus. It's a commitment to the fact that our bad things are going to turn to good. Our good things can't be taken from us and the best is yet to come. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we know with great confidence that God is a sovereign God over and above every situation and every circumstance in our life. And God is so intimately involved in the creation that not a sparrow from the heavens falls without his knowledge. He's got an auditor up there who counts the number of hairs on your head. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he knows you. That's how sovereign he is. And it's that same confidence that the saints of old had when they expressed their faith in times of trouble. Job says, uh, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. It's that same confidence that we can have and we know these things to be true. And we know my bad things are going to turn to good. And we know that the good things I have, this plan that God has for my life for conformity to the person of Jesus, this uh, fact that I've been adopted, God has adopted me as his son, as his daughter, and we know that the best is yet to come. Do you know those three truths and realities deep down in your heart today? Because I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to have that same assurance, that same sense of certainty, that same certitude that we can say with Paul, and we know. And it's nearly like we're a little bit arrogant when we say it, but I think that's okay. And we know. And it's not because of anything that we have done or do, but it's what the Word of God says 
about these reality. Okay? Your bad is going to turn to good. My good no one can take away from me. And the best is yet to come. Now, maybe you're here today and you're going through a particular, particularly hard place as a Christian, as a believer. And uh, you're just thinking, man, life is tough. <laughs> There's stuff that's really challenging and hard in my life. Well, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to encourage you. Maybe he won't change the situation that you're going through, but he wants to encourage you in the midst of where you are to come back to the reality of God's Word, to these three foundational theological truths which can infuse us with a sense of joy and happiness. And if that's you today, I want to pray for you. Maybe you're here and you couldn't say, well, I'm in that place where I can actually say that. I'm not in relationship with Jesus. Well, I think when you understand what it is that Jesus has done for us, when you understand the price that He's paid, maybe that might encourage you to come that step closer to putting your trust in Jesus. I use an analogy and I've probably used it here before, but I love it. And it's to try and explain what it was that Jesus actually did when He died on the cross on our behalf. And it's to do with a bit of paper. Can you imagine a sheet of paper? And uh, John, you're sitting here. It's got John's name written at the top. John Scott, Pastor John Scott, right at the top of a lovely, pure white A4 sheet of paper from Office Works. Can you see it? And then we come and we write down everything that John Scott's ever done wrong in his life. One piece. Yeah, well... We might need more than one piece. We might need a ream. Actually, we'd probably need every ream of A4 photocopy of paper in every office works in Brisbane. It would be, can you imagine that pile? Everything, every time he's thought something wrong, every time he's gossiped, every time he's slandered, every time he's lied, every time he's had a, an impure, everything. Every sin. That's a, well, for me, I know how big that pile would be. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this other bit of paper? Again, pure white. And it's got one name at the top, Jesus Christ, written up there. And everything that Jesus has ever done wrong is written down underneath His name. And what's there? Nothing. It's completely clear. It's even wider than John's paper that he started with. What Jesus did on the cross is He got this big heavenly marking pen, climbed to the top of John's pile, and crosses out John Scott and writes in, in, in place of John's name, Jesus. Then he comes over to this, this, this blank sheet of paper that has Jesus written on it and crosses out Jesus' name and writes John Scott. And then he gives it to John. So when John stands before the Father on that day and the Father says, give us account for your life, and the accuser comes to say, well, what about John? He did this, he did that. And John pulls out this bit of paper and says, here we are. Jesus gave me this. That's what happened on the cross of Calvary. Now, you're here and you might know that today, but maybe you're here and you don't know that. Well, I think the Holy Spirit wants you to know that. And He wants you to start thinking about what it is that He has done for you. And I want to pray for you as well this morning. So why don't you stand? And I'm going to pray for those two groups of people. Maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus. I'm going to pray for you that you come to know Him. But if you're here and you're going through a hard time and uh, you, know, you know this message was for you today to encourage you too, I'm going to pray for you. So Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. 
And today we join our prayers and our faith together. Lord, we thank You for the majesty of Calvary. Father, we thank You for everything that we have in You. We thank You that You have adopted us into the family of God. We thank You, Lord God, that we have a conviction in our hearts that our bad things are going to turn to good, that the good things we have can never be taken away from us and that the best is yet to come. And I pray for each and every person here this morning who may be going through a difficult time. I pray that the reality of the Word that has been spoken today, Lord, would just capture their hearts and imaginations for all eternity. I pray, Father, through the ministry of Your Holy Spirit, You would reach down now and touch people's lives. Lord, encourage them, enthuse them, Lord, with the reality of who You are. Father, I pray in the midst of their struggles and battles that they would lift their eyes up to You and they would see You afresh today. Lord, I pray for anyone here, Lord, who couldn't say that, yes, I'm in relationship with You, Jesus, as my Saviour and my Lord. Father, I thank You for them and I pray that Your Holy Spirit would continue to be at work in their lives today as You continue to reveal who You are, Lord, and the plan that You have for their lives. Father, I pray that in Jesus' Name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to have some prayer. I'm going to ask Naomi to keep playing if you can. And so some of the leaders of the church, if you need prayer for anything, we'd love you to come and, and to receive that prayer. But can I speak a blessing over you before you, we've got tea and coffee coming and some food before we have that. Can I speak a blessing over you? If you'd like to just put your hands out in front of you, go forth into the world in peace. Be a good courage. Hold fast that which is good. Render to no one evil for evil, but strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak and help the afflicted. Honour everyone, love and serve the Lord. Rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about City Lights Church at www.citylights.community.